Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, my guest is author Jennifer Wright, and she's here to discuss her latest book titled Madame Ristel, The Life, Death, and Resurrection of Old New York's Most Fabulous, Fearless, and Infamous Abortionist. This book is a riveting account of the life of Madame Ristel, who was a fascinating character and a bit of an anti-hero in the mid-1800s. Not only was Madame Russell a famous, if not controversial, abortionist in New York City at the time, but she came to this country as an immigrant and became a self-made millionaire. Jennifer Wright's retelling of Madame Russell's life and what life was like in New York at the time, a life without legal and reliable access to birth control or abortion, is truly a page-turner, right down to the mystery surrounding Madame Russell's demise in the final chapters of the book. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Jennifer Wright. Jennifer Wright, welcome. Thank you. It is a pleasure to be here. So Madame Rastel was a self-made millionaire and an infamous abortionist in the 19th century. Now, however, there hasn't been a lot written about her and, you know, she isn't a household name. I actually didn't know much about her before reading your book. But what I'm really interested in learning more about were the vivid descriptions of her life, you know, not just the history of her role as an abortionist, but you have details about her home. You talk about her presence. She also had this luxurious carriage, which you detail. How do you find this much detail about someone who isn't a household name and whose footprints, in history books at least, are pretty limited? Well, she was incredibly famous during her own time. And one of the things that was so interesting to me, first of all, you really can't read about abortion in New York in the 1850s without coming across article after article after article about Madame Restell. So uh, this was a celebrity of her time. And one of the things that was interesting to me was that the articles about her weren't just about her practice or the multiple trials that she was engaged in. They were also about her parties and about how she had these enormous diamonds. And there were so many articles about how beautiful her coach and her horses were. (laughs) And one of the really funny things that struck me about all of these is I assumed that these articles would say, oh, this is so trashy. This is so new money. Look at look at how gaudy her wardrobe is. And all of the articles kind of say, well, we agree abortion is bad, but this is the best house and the most elegantly dressed woman we have ever seen in our lives. <laughs> and um, and I thought that was so funny. I, I don't think it would be the case now. Right. I mean, no, she was fabulous. I think it's fair to say she that. She was so <laughs> fabulous. <laughs> You know, but she was, you know, I I think one of the things I find really interesting about her story is that she was an immigrant, right? But she was from (laughs) England. She was. And she had a typical story up to a point, right? You know, she came over to America as an immigrant expecting great things, expecting a better life. But like a lot of people, she found that that was just a promise. Yes. Even though it's a really familiar narrative, I'm curious as to if there was anything in her early life that would have led you to believe that she would end up as being a really infamous abortionist as opposed to a seamstress or anything like that, that like most immigrants ended up, immigrant women. 
Well, Mademoiselle came from Painswick, that had, which was a town in England that had a somewhat liberated attitude towards sex. Uh, there were a lot of well-known parties celebrating the great god Pan in Painswick. And there were articles from the time talking about how these parties often just descended into sex in the woods. So if you grew up around that, I think there's a good chance that Madame Ristel was aware from a fairly early age that sex was a part of life. And uh, people do often talk in her childhood about how she is very, very intelligent. And one of the things that struck me very early was that when she was 16, she was working as a maid. She was courted by and married a tailor, which would already be like a nice step up for Madame Ristel. And people talk about how she immediately superseded this tailor in ability, that he kind of taught her some basics but he was also an alcoholic, so she really had to take over for him. And I, I think it's very clear that Madame Restelle is able to teach herself how to do things very, very quickly when she needs to. And when she moved to New York and her husband died and she was left with their toddler daughter, she lived down the street from a pill compounder who was... At the time, you could basically smash any herbs you wanted to into pills and say, okay, these are going to cure your headaches, or this will cure your insomnia, or it, it's pretty common still today when people try to sell supplements to just kind of have no FDA oversight and say, like, give this a try, maybe it will work. And Manor still saw what he was doing. And she also saw how many other single mothers were around her in the Lower East Side of Manhattan at that time, and what terrifying circumstances women could be reduced to when they had unplanned or unwanted pregnancies. And she started compounding pills out of ergot, uh, cantharides, tansy oil, and turpentine that apparently very effectively induced miscarriages. So again, I think she saw a man doing something and said, okay, I can do it better. So, yeah. But, you know, that seemed to be a theme in her life, you know, kind of surpassing men, right? Often her successes were kind of attributed to the men in her life versus her own intelligence, right? And her they own were. savviness. Yeah. Uh, they were. And there, there are some reversals of that. Uh, she had a husband who was a printer for the Herald and who really understood how advertising worked in this age. And uh, together, she and her second husband, Charles, crafted this persona of Madame Restelle, that she would advertise under this French name. They would talk about how she came from Paris. She had a glamorous grandmother who was also a famous midwife. And none of, none of this was true, but it was a time that was known in medical circles as the Paris period, where France was really on the forefront of medical innovation. So that would have been impressive. And French people were just considered a little more liberated sexually. So it made a lot of sense for her to go under this name. And a lot of people later would say, well, her second husband must have pushed her into this profession, that he must have wanted to get rich. And I, I think Madame Ristel, first of all, was making pills and learning from the pill compounder down the street before she met her second husband. And second of all, it really seems like she was the one who was performing surgical abortions the entire time. Um, 
Her husband opened his own little office for people who wanted to see a male doctor, but really all he'd do is send them across the street to his wife. So it really seems like this was Madame Ristel's business. At one point, her husband did write a book about uh, female anatomy that contained recipes for abortion pills. And in that case, people did say, Madame Ristel has to have written this. this. This must have been written by her because he could not know how to do this. And I am sort of of the opinion that Madame Ristel had at least a heavy hand in editing his book. Right. I would imagine that that would be hard for her to have published, you know, under her uh, name. I think that's true. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's very true. Um, but I also think that I, I you know, have seen no indication that her husband, Charles, knew how to perform a surgical <laughs> abortion. If, if there's information about that in the book, then that's coming from Madame Restelle. Yeah. You know, I don't want to spoil anything in the book, but um, just to talk about Charles for a minute, he was an atheist, which I think speaks to her unusual worldview, right? And given the times, right? I think it was probably unusual for a woman or anyone to marry an, an open atheist. I don't know. Um, I mean, I, I think there were a lot of free thinkers in New York. There was certainly a circle of more radical thinkers that would have ascribed to Charles's worldview. But Madame Ristel also had a really good pew at a very well-known Episcopalian church. Um, and she went there so she could drum up business because she would meet <laughs> a lot of very wealthy people. She also kept a beautiful copy of the Bible in her waiting room. And she said to her granddaughter, who became her apprentice, that like obviously she doesn't believe this, but it really calms people down. <laughs> it's a very yeah. comforting touch when uh, when her patients are waiting there. So uh, I, I think that is interesting. I think uh, Charles was a very devout non-believer who did not want um, any religious ceremony around his death. So he was he was probably a little stronger in his views than a lot of people would have been at the time. You really contextualize the life of women then, and specifically, you know, women, you know, who have little power, little money, but specifically women who are living without access to birth control and without access to abortion services, right? And, you know, what was really striking were some of the, the numbers that you include in the book about, you know, children, right? And often when we hear these stories or narratives about a time before abortion or a time before birth control, we talk about the lives of women, which is really important, but there are a lot of children around who have some pretty, you know, not great lives themselves. I think one of the numbers that was mentioned that, that there were 30,000 homeless children in New York City. Mm -hmm. I, yep. I don't know if I have that number correct. And children were being left on doorsteps. Someone left a child on the doorstep of the mayor. <laughs> you, know, you know, children were drugged so their mothers could go to work. And we don't talk about that enough, about the, the, the lifestyle or the circumstances that children are left in when we don't have access to birth control or abortion. We don't, and it is horrifying. Um, it, it was a terrible time for children, made more terrifying by the fact that there were no foundling homes at the time. And there's a big difference between orphanages and foundling homes, which I had to discover as I was writing this book. Orphanages take in children who had two married parents who have died. Um, and, uh, you know, th that was certainly common by itself. Very easily, two parents might get cholera, both die, their eight-year-old child goes to an orphanage. But foundlings were the children of unmarried women 
who had given birth. And orphanages would not accept them because they were considered to have bad blood. That uh, The notion was that inevitably these children would grow up to be either thieves or prostitutes because their mother had been unmarried. So women had no place to put those children. And that's why you see stories like the baby that was left on the doorstep of the mayor who almost took him in. Uh, and women would work so hard to figure out what doorstep you could leave this baby on where somebody might take it. Um, it's, it's a really heartbreaking part of this story. And uh, it, it, I think there's a, one of the things that I found very disturbing a few years ago when there was a formula shortage there were all of these i think very poorly informed people saying well this is this is why you should just be breastfeeding everything was better when women were just breastfeeding you should just be doing that and <laughs> most women were never able to breastfeed on the scale that you need to so wealthy women would have wet nurses who would provide milk for their children and other children would be fed kind of this thing called pap that was mashed up cow's milk and bread, which we now know is very, very bad for children. And a lot of the children who were being fed pap did not survive past infancy. So, um, so really what what happened before there was formula is not you had this rosy world where women were all happily breastfeeding what happened was a lot a lot of children died yeah you know this must have you know just to go back a bit in her life i mean this must have been impactful for her because you know she mm -hmm. was widowed fairly young mm -hmm. and she had a daughter and you know before she became an abortionist she tried everything else you know she tried to be a seamstress and she tried some other things so she must have gone into this with some empathy for what it was like to be a woman with a child and you know without being widowed without someone to take care of you or without you know a steady income that kind of led her in this direction presumably i think it is remarkable that madame Restell did not become a prostitute um she might have I, I, there were women who were considered prostitutes might have been women who had you know had sex for money only a few times which is one of the reasons we get such a high rate of women who are considered prostitutes during this period but there was no way she was going to make enough money as a seamstress to support herself and support a very young child in new york if she had not found this other profession um she would not have been accepted back into service as a maid because she had a child uh, she might have tried to work in a factory, but then you're talking about 14 to 16 hour days for probably not really enough money to have somebody else take care of your child and no time to take care of a young child yourself. So if Madame Ristel had not figured this out, I think the most likely outcome is that she would have become a prostitute. And so, you know, like you said, she learned pill compounding from from someone, a man that she was working for or with, you know, but there are lots of abortionists during that period. And I just want to go back and, and talk about, you know, some of the, the things that women went through when they when they needed an abortion. I think there's some descriptions of using some kind of toxic substance from beetles. Uh, yes. <laughs> boiled garlic can you just talk a bit about that um, I, some of these are more historic years for abortion so they're a little different from what madame Estelle did um if you go far back in history uh, there are women who will try to induce an infection by using something called a pessary where you would grind up things like 
beetles and cram them up um, your vaginal cavity. And if you could get an infection going there, then there was a good chance you would miscarry. Um, unfortunately, there was also a good chance you'd die. So there is a part of the Hippocratic Oath that is commonly misinterpreted to say that a doctor should not induce an abortion, but what it actually translates to is you will not use a poisonous pessary to induce an abortion. So it's a little more ambiguous than it's often made out to be. But by Madame Restelle's age, it had fortunately developed a little bit. So what Madame Restelle was using to seemingly great effect, because pretty quickly people started talking about how they had taken her pills and they'd miscarried five times, were ingredients like ergot, which was very common, um, cancerides, and also tansy oil and turpentine. And I was really interested. I read some reports from doctors in the 1970s talking about how turpentine is a kind of harrowing motif in do-it-yourself abortions, that you can drink turpentine and it will cause you to have an abortion, but it will also kill you. So Madame Restell must have been mixing things like tansy oil and turpentine very, very carefully. Um, because what's remarkable is not that these did effectively produce miscarriages, but that to our knowledge, none of the people who came to her died. And she had many, many, many repeat customers. Was that typical of other abortionists during the time? Um no. no, there were a lot of, no, okay. no, there were a lot of much worse abortionists. And I mean, maybe through no fault of their own. I, I think, again, it is remarkable that Madame Restell seemed to have the success rate she did, the number of patients she did, and that there's no evidence that she killed any of them. So that was not the case with a lot of other abortionists. And one of the reasons that there was a great crackdown on Madame Restelle was that there was an abortionist named Dr. Rosenzweig, who was nowhere near as skilled as her, uh, killed one of his patients, and then stuffed that patient's body in a trunk and had a female friend of his take her to the train station and see if they could just load the trunk on a train out of the city. Now, if you stuff a dead body in a trunk, it um, it smells horrible. It smells so bad. You shouldn't you shouldn't be you shouldn't murder anyone, and you also shouldn't be like a stupid murderer. <laughs> so uh, so they immediately figured it out. The person who brought the bot trunk to the train station turned on him pretty fast. He said that he had never even heard of this woman, but at the same time, he had articles of her clothing, like clearly <laughs> visible to the police officers that came to his house. So, uh, so he was arrested. And this horrified New York. Um, it was considered especially upsetting because the woman's mother went mad from grief. Um, her lover committed suicide. It, it was seen as this is this is a horrifying thing that might happen if you go and have an abortion. And it was really effective in the push in Madame Restelle's later life for society to crack down on abortions. But Madame Restelle was not like that. Madame Restelle was very gentle with her patients. 
which is interesting because I don't think of her as being a very gentle lady through much of her life. This is someone who loved fighting in the newspapers, who apparently said something unprintable to police officers the one time <laughs> she was in prison. Um, she's, she's a tough lady, but she talks about how her patients will call her mother. Um, she will sleep in bed with them after they've had the procedure to make sure that they're not running a fever. Um, she uh, makes sure that they're being fed meals and soup and getting enough liquids kind of around the clock. She doesn't let them leave for a few days after they've had the procedure to make sure that there are no signs of like any infection that's setting in. So I think she was very cautious. And in that... She was also a little more cautious than some of the other female abortionists during this time who would kind of perform an abortion and then send their patients on their way and sort of just hope for the best. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, I it's obvious why that would contribute to her success. <laughs> you yeah, know, not, not killing your patients and stuff. Yeah, and the yeah. <laughs> but also, I think you, you can probably attribute some of her success to her marketing. Is that true? Um, Absolutely. Yes, it was incredible marketing. And it was very candid marketing. Uh, Madame Rostel really advocates for abortion as a responsible act. And as um as an incredible good, she likens it to a lightning rod that helps avert the worst ravages of nature. And she talks about in her early advertisements how we've all seen what happens to families that have too many children. They're not able to feed them. We've seen what happens to women who have too many children. They are sick. They are not able to handle having five or six or seven pregnancies. Uh, they talk about how in these families, the husbands are miserable. Their wives are so worn out that they are no longer functioning. And I think those are concerts that are more commonly accepted today that I think today we, I mean, I don't know if it's fair to say the majority, but I think there are a lot of people who do at least believe that women should be able to decide how many children they want to have. That if you want to have 10 children, that is great. But you certainly, you know, can also say, well, I think I think we're going to be happiest with an only child. You're just having two children. And people think, okay, that's very reasonable. You should do whatever you need to do to make that be the case. And that's something that Madame Rostel really advocates for very early. And uh, the main way to do that at the time would be to have abortions or to take abortive medicine. And that's a very modern take on the role of abortion in her lives, because, because I think a lot of abortionists then were kind of in their advertisements, they were trying to, you would have to read between the lines to understand what services they were providing. You would read yeah. behind the lines. Yes. And I mean, a little bit of that depends on the year that you're reading these advertisements. Um, if it's after the Comstock laws, there is a huge, any written description of abortion or birth control is considered obscene and it's illegal and you can't do it. So if you read newspapers after 1873, you're going to have to read between the lines a lot more. Back in the 1830s, when abortion performing an abortion was just a misdemeanor before the quickening, which usually occurs around the fourth or fifth month of pregnancy, um, Madame Rousseau could be a little more candid about why, why she thought she was providing a very good service. 
You know, so let's actually talk about Comstock, Anthony Comstock, which is kind of a, her nemesis, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and so tell me about the role that he played in her life, who he was, and the role that he played overall in how we view abortion. Uh, Anthony Comstock was intensely religious, and uh, he was a true believer. His mother had 10 children. She died giving birth to the 10th. Uh, he did not seem to view this as a negative thing. He thought that um, that she had perfectly fulfilled her role as a woman. And he was also, and um, I, I find this kind of a funny detail, but it's very relevant to um, how Comstock led his life. He was also a chronic masturbator. And because he was very religious, he felt incredibly bad about it. So we know from his diaries that he spends like the entire night awake, just like wrestling with that serpent and then feeling bad about it and hates himself. And, uh, and it's all the fault of like a woman who wore a low cut dress at a party and it's her fault. It's not his fault. And uh, what Comstock really wanted to do was remake the world in such a way that there would be nothing to arouse his lustful impulses. And uh, that meant cracking down on art that might arouse those impulses. It meant cracking down on literature. Um, and when Comstock moved to New York, kind of his first move was to take his own money and go and buy pornography and then bring that pornography into the police and say, <laughs> uh, say this, is, this is pornography and you should crack down on a shop that's selling pornography. And uh, he started getting a little bit of acclaim for this. In the early reports about Comstock, um, there's one newspaper that said, yeah, we don't pay attention to him for the same reason we don't pay attention to mosquitoes during the summer. Like, they're annoying, but what can you do about them? Just don't pay attention to them and they'll go away. And Anthony Comstock did not go away. Um, Anthony Comstock got funding from a lot of very, very wealthy, very like-minded people who did not like the fact that America was undergoing a great deal of social change during this age where women were suddenly becoming suffragettes. There had been a massive influx of immigrants. There was a newly free Black populace after the Civil War. And Anthony Comstock's kind of a uh, repeated point is like we we have to protect the youth from being corrupted like uh, we have to we have to go back to traditional values we uh, have to create a pure world for our youngsters and i think that's still rhetoric that you hear today very often uh so anthony comstock passed what's commonly referred to as the comstock act in 1973 which forbade mailing anything that might be considered obscene, which extended to information about birth control or even what an abortion was. And obviously that would have made Madame Ristel's business much, much trickier. And Anthony Comstock ultimately went after Madame Ristel personally. Uh, he dressed in a disguise. He went to her, he said that he had a lady friend who was pregnant and needed not to be, who, um, who might die if she stayed pregnant. And Madame Ristel gave him two pills and some instructions and told him, have her take these, they should work by Thursday, but if they don't, bring her with you and come back and we'll go from there. And Anthony Comstock did come back, but he came back with the police to arrest Madame Ristel. 
Yeah, so I won't spoil the ending. It's very good. <laughs> but but I want it not very good I mean, in someone's life, but it's it's really it's still really interesting. It's a mystery. But I want to go back to the social change piece and kind of the climate that was happening then with Anthony Comstock and just generally. Because you mentioned that, you know, people were kind of um, the, the anti-immigrant sentiment was growing and there were lots of free to, you know, black people, you know, moving into cities. And some of the motivations are very similar to the anti-abortionists that we see today, anti-abortion movement that we have today, you know, in particular, this idea of a replacement theory, right? I, that That is absolutely the case. Horatio Storer, one of the leading anti-abortion advocates from this period, talks about how uh, upon women's loins depends the future of the nation and whether or not it will be populated with our own children or those of aliens. And uh, what what he is implying there is that it's white Protestant women. Uh, the aliens would be the children of Irish immigrants or the children of Black people who had just been freed after the Civil War. And uh, there was incredible fear that white Protestant people in America were going to be outbred. And there were political parties that really rallied supporters around that fear. And I think it's something that we're seeing happening again now. And um, and I'm sure we have all watched various news stations that talk about how, you know, we, we should all be very afraid that the U.S. might not be dominated by white Protestant people. And it's the same fear that was happening in the 1860s and the 1870s that led to the crackdown on abortions. Yeah. So, you know, let's get to her her death, um, Madame Russell. Um, She died mm -hmm. under some mysterious circumstances. And again, I don't want to give the, the ending away, but oysters are involved in, you know, <laughs> not not her death, but, you know, just the, the leading up to her death, the climax of, mm -hmm. of the of the story. You know, there's a horse drawn carriage. You know, what 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 happened there? What's the mystery? <gasps> Well, um, okay, again, I think it's important to say that Madame Marcel is really unflappable uh, <laughs> throughout her entire life. And uh, she's arrested by Comstock. Uh, she tells the policeman that she's going to need to eat like a full lunch before she goes to jail. So they sit with her. She eats a bunch of oysters. Then she tells them that she's going to go in her own carriage because she doesn't like their carriage. So, uh, so she seems pretty much like her cool self uh, initially. She's in jail. She's interviewed by reporters. She says that this is fine. She's catching up on reading a lot of novels. Like, in a way, Madame Rostel always uses her time in jail. And she had been arrested a few times before to have like a little break. Um, one time, she, she was once arrested for one year for performing an abortion in the six months of a woman's pregnancy, which was considered a felony at the time. And she was sent to jail, and she immediately took over the warden's office and made the warden's wife bring her all her meals. Uh, she made three other prisoners her servants. They were all pretty cool about it. And they brought her a feather bed and, like, lots of lamps so she could read and do her <laughs> writing at night. And uh, she told... She told the warden that, like, she would not be able to do any of the work assigned to women in the prison. Um, one of my favorite Madame Ristel in prison bits is she got to wear all of her own clothing. And at one point, she holds up 
like this sad little apron and because all the other women were assigned to do sewing. That's kind of what you did if you were a woman in jail, you were a free seamstress. And she holds up a sad little apron at one point and she's like, oh, I tried so hard to make it, but I just can't. I tried to do what all the other women are doing. <laughs> she was a seamstress. She was an unbelievably successful seamstress. <laughs> um, so uh, Madame Brasil is not usually thrown by the prospect of jail. And uh, she initially seems fine. And then suddenly she has a very rapid change in temperament and uh, she starts acting extremely hysterical and extremely suicidal and shortly after a dead body with its throat slit was found in Madame Restelle's tub and I, I think people were very surprised at the time because her lawyer was pretty sure that what Anthony Comstock had done was very clearly entrapment um so uh, he was pretty sure that he could get her off. But there was also a lot of uh, questioning at the time about whether or not that was actually Madame Restelle's body in the tub. Because uh, her estranged son-in-law told people that there had always been a plan to get her out of the country. Like, if it seemed like the climate was getting really bad. There was a plan to get her on a ship to Europe. And when people searched Madame Restelle's house, they found that all of her diamonds and all of her fine clothes were gone. And her grandchildren, who she was very close to, she had a grandson and a granddaughter who had grown up in her house with her, uh, apparently wore bright festive colors to the reading of the will. And for the next decade, I took a lovely three-month trip to Paris, where there were periodic news reports that Madame Restelle had been seen alive. So it's very possible that she was just very upset by her changing circumstances and committed suicide. It's also possible that she sort of could tell that the climate was changing in America, that it was not a place where... She could talk candidly about her work anymore, and she might be happier just moving off to Paris. Yeah, I, I would I would go to Paris. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm leaning towards that theory than than rather her, you know, committing suicide. I I like to one of one of the other things that if you buy into the theory that she fled the country and went to Paris, I find very funny is that before she starts telling everyone she's suicidal, she tells one reporter, I'm so happy, but I'm also just afraid that at any time my house might burn to the ground do you ever have that <laughs> feeling that your house is just gonna burn to the ground and like maybe they'll find your body there but maybe not <laughs> i say this all the time yeah sure and i've always it is my own personal imagining but i like to imagine her grandchildren who really enjoyed her very beautiful house being like grandma please don't burn the house to the ground <laughs> like we can find another way to fake your death So what do you think Madame Marcel's legacy is and what markers of hers can we see in today's push for abortion rights? Well, I think one of the things that's really important to me that goes beyond her legacy is that nothing Comstock did worked. Um, I think there was as big a crackdown on abortion as there could have been. Um, and it's estimated that in the mid-1800s, around 1860, 
in America, one in five pregnancies was terminated by abortion. Uh, Horatio Storer put the statistic a little bit higher in New York. He said he thought it was one in four. And we have the Board of Health of the state of Michigan in 1898 reported that they estimated that one in three pregnancies in the state were terminated by abortion. So uh, in the Comstock laws, the many, many laws forbidding abortion that were put into place during the mid 1800s didn't stop women from having abortions. It just made the abortions less safe. Yeah. You know, I actually, I really love this book, by the way, I am looking at the cover right now. Um, <laughs> um, I, I just want to say that just, just an aside that I, when I really love a book, I buy both the audio version and the hard copy. And I just want to say that if you're thinking about buying the audio version of this book, it's done really, really well. I'm not really sure who's reading it, but it's done really well. Oh, it's Mara Wilson. Uh, she played Matilda. <laughs> if you've ever seen Matilda. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was, it was just such an incredible gift to have her doing this. And I think she does it so, so well. She's, yeah. Oh, okay. That makes sense. She's really good at this, by the yeah, way. <laughs> she's, she's very talented. Yeah. <laughs> well, Jennifer Wright, thank you so much for joining me and chatting about your book, Madame Rostel, The Life, Death, and Resurrection of Old New York's Most Fabulous, Fearless, and Infamous Abortionist. It's, it's a really good read. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I am so happy to talk about her. <laughs>